The following podcast is part of the 6040 Network. Hey there and welcome to Everything Small Business, your shortcut to start, build, manage and grow your small business. I'm Cherie and in today's episode, I'm chatting with Jim Roddy, Senior Business Broker and Founding Partner at Transworld Business Advisors on the Gold Coast, all as part of our mini-series called Share Your Small Business Story. In this episode, Jim shares his knowledge and expertise in buying and selling businesses, trends and new developments that he's noticed as a business broker, especially during such uncertain times, and his advice to other small business owners. So basically, it's great to have you on the show. Okay. Um, So this is Everything Small Business. We'll start with a little bit about you and why you chose to start running your own business. Yeah, personally speaking, I've got uh, about 35 plus years or had 35 plus years in various corporations and businesses of different sizes, Northern Hemisphere and down here, across a whole gambit of different industries, manufacturing, wholesale, transport, FMCG. I didn't realize at the time it was actually quite a cushy life. I thought I was working hard. I found out once you open, run your own business, what working hard really is. But I was well paid. But it didn't, more latterly, I suppose, it wasn't sitting with me from a standpoint of values. There was people in and around the boardroom who were not consistent. And I'm about when you stipulate something, when you stand for something, you stand by it. So I had the opportunity to leave my most recent position, which was um, National Sales Manager for Cement Australia. And I got offered another job, but I didn't want to do it. I knew at point five years ago that I wanted to do something different. After some soul searching, I, um, it's one of those moments where you think, well, I don't know how I found myself here, but I want to start my own business, do my own business. Do I buy or do I start? Then you start looking at your values, what your core strengths are, and what you believe you'd like to do for the next 10, 15 years. And uh, the roads led me to, after some extensive research and some, some significant dead ends, I ended up with uh, looking at business broking. And um, from that point, four and a half years ago to now, I... Uh, I haven't looked back. I absolutely love what I do. And it's, uh, it's not a calling necessarily, but it's, uh, it appeals to the core of me in what, what I, helping people and enabling 30 odd years of experience to be used positively. So how would you find then that your experience helps in business broking, given that you did come from a corporate background? Effectively, what we're doing as a business broker is we're packaging a set of commercial outcomes, both historically, currently and futuristically. My background in these aforementioned blue chip businesses was all about brands and marketing as well. So on the one side, I understand how the financials work because I was traditionally and consistently creating me and held to budgets through their cash flows and the likes. But then I also understand that the need to have a brand. At the end of the day, your numbers are not what you sell. Your brand, your brand values and your, your personality is what you sell. So working in and around those businesses, and sorry, but the thing I forgot to mention was that I've had substantial exposure to franchising as well. So from a, from a corporate and a franchisor and from a franchisee perspective, the power of going with the right brand and having the values not only created, but upheld at every level, what matters and what create the value. So understanding the financials, understanding the essence of the business, putting them together as a business broker is what helps people understand the value and subsequently what leads to a sale. And they're all of the, the machinations that I, I suppose, brought from my various iterations and, and uh, jobs throughout 35 years. So what is your qualifications then that you use to get into business broking? It's funny to say that. So I'll say why in a moment. The only qualification you need in Queensland to be a business broker, ironically enough, is a real estate license, be it salesperson or real estate agent. So anyone in it with a real estate agent can call themselves a business broker. 
As a consequence, I'll legitimize this statement in a minute, the standard within business broking is hugely variable. I am on a committee of the AIBB for Queensland, which is Australian Institute of Business Brokers. And within there, I'm on education and training. I'm actually on the national, I'm actually now on the national AIBB education committee. The reason being, for a number of years, I avoided the opportunity, but someone put it to me in very, very succinct terms. If you feel there's a problem, the only way you can change it is from within. So I joined the IIBB committee over a year ago with a single purpose. And like all those other people on the AIBB committee, of which there's some very, very credible, long-standing members of the business brokering community. We're all passionate about raising what is a very variable standard in Queensland and nationally, but we can only affect what happens in Queensland. Personally, I've been given a project within the same committee to identify and isolate those who are trading within Queensland who are not adequately accredited because Queensland, you have to have a specific Queensland license. If your license is in Victoria, you can't trade as a business broker here. There's other people who've got no qualifications, other people with expired qualifications. So in the process of pulling together or starting to pull together a paper for which the Queensland, the AIBB can start to tackle the variations in quality and um, standards that good people who pay good money and expect a reasonable sort of good service and business brokers should be able to have delivered consistently. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's a, it's a challenge with a lot of things. Just because you can have the tick of approval even, and it sounds like you're operating in a space where they don't even have that, but even if they've got it, there is such a variability. So there's no standardized, veri- like a verification of competency. No. Which is a bit of a shame because, I mean, you're talking between the difference of actually having an owner achieve a significant premium or a massive negative variance for something that they've worked their entire life for and are expecting to fund their retirement. When you're selling a house, you can access real-time data on the internet that tells you what the house was sold for prior and then what the average for the the neighborhood is. None of that information is available for business brokers. It's all clandestine. Everything we do, for good reason in the main when when we're dealing with clients, is kept on the low. They don't like their staff, their clients, or their competitors to know. So it's, it's everything is done with skulking in the shadows. And those final sales are not recorded anywhere in the same way as it does on, on RP data with real estate. Within the AIBB, we have a, um, our own stats that we put in there because we're all trying to lift the standard. There is no, um, within reason, there's no secrecy within members of the AIBB. We share information because we're, we're all aspiring to create a better level for everybody. So we put our statistics in there. So the only point of reference, realistically, that a business broker can refer to on previous sales is BizStats within AIBB. Other than that, there's plenty of websites where you can see what's sold, sorry, what's advertised for sale. That, by and large, is some way away it will actually sell for, if it ever does sell. Mm. So the points of reference from uh, business brokers that are not well-connected are limited to their own experience. Yeah, and that's what it comes down to, too, in part, isn't it? The connections that you have, because that's what can make or break the client's deal, pretty much. Yeah, you're trading on your credibility. Your credibility is based on experience and connections, whether it be your database, the previous like sales that you've had. You're bringing points of reference and you're bringing things into the conversation when you're engaging with clients that show that you are able to position and effectively sell what it is they represent. And that's all they're paying for. Everything else is, is a consequence of those things. Yeah. So what is it, I guess, what are the services then that you generally provide for clients? 
Well, I'll tell you what personally I don't do, which is not necessarily in keeping with everybody in business brokerage. I'm not a business coach. I'm not a business, a business strategist. I don't purport to be. I don't, I don't seek to be. Um, at Transworld, my business partner and I, we simply, once you get an inquiry, we will appraise you effectively. That can take a week or two because we have to understand a, a fair degree about your business at a top line level and then do a research to come back to you and present what we believe is a, is a true and representative market position for you. Assuming, as is normally the case, people say, yes, we want to go with you. Then we sit down and then we really dig, start to dig into the business. I can't say that we will need to understand the business as well as the business owner, because that's not practical. But what we need to do is be able to understand it sufficiently well that in the written word and someone in Melbourne or Adelaide reading our communications and subsequently talking to us on the phone or sitting down with us in person, they ask meaningful questions that every business owner needs to understand. And we can provide an eloquent, instantaneous, believable retort. If we are not doing that and we're scratching our head and we're looking perplexed and a few ums and ahs, it doesn't necessarily say that the information is not correct. It just provides an element of doubt in the minds of the prospective buyer. So we spend an inordinate amount of time from the point at which we engage someone to the point at which we put them online can be four to six to eight weeks by the time we've finished what we call is our our due diligence. Mm -hmm. We traditionally due diligence in the minds of most people happens at the contract phase. In order to circumvent some of those false dawns, those those journeys that got there and never got over the line, we undertaken most of that up front for ourselves, not to share with anybody, but we know, and it gives us a different level of understanding as well. And invariably it will bring out a few things that were not necessarily disclosed that would have been subsequently found out at a moment too late. So we get to that point, we create all of the marketing material for online and that will go to our database. We canvas our database, put the adverts online. We take all of the responsibility for all of the inquiries inbound coming in. So we take all the inquiries. Everyone signs a non-disclosure agreement. We follow it up with a conversation. We qualify them as best we can. At that point, if we think they are, this business is for them, they would suit it. Then we'll have a, either a personal meeting with them or if that's already taken place, we'll take them to the place of business. Normally, that's after hours. So people in the facility are not particularly aware of the business is for sale. Uh, that goes well. They're interested. Then we'll go through the, the expression of interest or the heads of agreement, whatever the um, preference is. We'll be the intermediary that, that uh, undertakes the negotiations. So there's no emotion. There's no um, uncomfortableness on anyone's part. Uh, we'll get to the point at which the both sides are agreed. And then we'll create the first draft of the contract based on the information that we have available to us. Now, it's, it's to a point where the information and can go to a lawyer. It saves the lawyer time and it saves the candidates a bit of lawyer's fees, which I'm not saying are expensive. I'm also not saying it's cheap. Once that's concluded, we also talk with the landlord. We, we, we provide an inlet with the landlord as well. So we get the application for the landlord. And then we uh, manage the uh, due diligence, all of the aspects of the due diligence, all the way through to conclusion. And yep, that's in a nutshell, in a very expediated nutshell. That's, that's what we do is there's a lot of minor things that we do in there as well, but we control all of the process. But that's important. I mean, most people don't just wake up in one morning and decide, hey, I'm going to sell my business. It's usually the result of a, a quite a long or drawn out decision making process, yeah. especially when it's something that's their baby. They've been running it for 10 or 15 years and they've had to really come to the decision. And I couldn't imagine there'd be anything worse or more stressful that if they don't go through those processes, that if the first time they get a buyer and then it falls over, it just creates this 
I couldn't even imagine the feeling that it would create for somebody to be that stressed about getting to that culmination point and then having it fall over and then thinking that they've got to go through the processes again. Whereas at least it sounds like that your due diligence evaluation kinds of weeds out a lot of those issues to preempt the problems that might otherwise come up. You make a a super, super point in which one I overlooked at the beginning. What this pre agreement phase does as well is from out there's a two-way evaluation going on here can they work with us do we have the values and the personality and the skill set and the attributes and can we work with them based on their expectations and their timelines increasingly well not increasing but it's not uncommon for us to us to say back listen you're wonderful people you've got a great business i don't think you're ready for us or i don't think we're the right agency for you it is a highly emotive journey because one of the things we have to do is decouple business from emotion. It's not your baby, it's a business. When this person comes in, all of the sweat, all of the anger, the frustrations, the monies you invested, it's irrelevant to them. They will see this one-dimensionally. So it's my job then to get you to understand that they won't, when you're talking lovingly, doughy-eyed about your business, they're going to be blank expression because to a large, to a greater or lesser degree, and without talking too bluntly, they don't care. The reason they'll buy it, the business, is because they can envisage doing it better than you. So that's the critical point, that we have to be sure that you're ready for this long, emotional, bumpy journey. Because invariably, there will be people who get you to a point where you think this could be it. And then for a whole facet of reasons, even the landlord, for example, who's more of a player in these negotiations, it falls over. So we prepare people for success eventually. If it comes sooner, that's all the better. So in your experience then, has COVID sort of changed much about how the business broking process has been approached or has there been more on the market or less? It's a tale of two parts of COVID. When COVID first came out, like everybody else, the world stopped turning for about a month until we understood what this might mean. And businesses, even those that pivoted well, took time. Those that didn't pivot so well, the owners were sat underneath their table for a couple of months wondering when's it all going to stop when things get back to normal again the upshot of that whether your business was stopped for a period of time or whether it pivoted successfully in either of those extremes you weren't talking about selling because one didn't think his business is worth anything and the other one was making more money than he can possibly ever have envisaged so the full extent of march 19 all the way through to the beginning of 2020 businesses weren't looking to sell then the border started opening mid last year and people started to come up, particularly, to, I'm talking specifically Queensland here. Demand was ferocious. Real estate is well documented. But in our own lesser way, business brokering went through an equally good time. So the, the outcome of that was that the business brokering community sold stock that wasn't being replenished particularly quickly. So we, everyone did really well. So from a, the beginning of this year, the world has understood that it's back to normal and businesses now are coming to the business broking community in great numbers in anticipation of about what's about to happen in 2022. The world understands that there's going to be a lot of movement, be it um, geographically, uh, residential housing or business next year. And uh, yeah, we're fairly blessed at the moment as a community and trans world particularly within that, that how many people are choosing to use us as their broker waiting for this uh, this next phase. Is that why the AIBB's focus now is on actually making sure that there's good quality brokers in the market? I think that is a constant crusade. When you're part of a, a professional body, one of your core principles needs to be professional standards in order to be taken seriously. Because the AIBB 
along with uh, members of the AIBB and the REIQ, they have they continuously lobby government for better legislation and changes. So one of the things that people will take you seriously for is if you are seen to be continuously challenging and putting back training and standards into your professional network. The big thing about business brokering is that it's a, it can be a very long time between drinks. A business will take, on average, between six to eight months to sell. And when you're starting out in the business community, if you haven't got a portfolio of products, then you're probably looking at 18 months before you start getting some kind of reoccurring income stream. And there would be a, uh, how would you say, an appetite or a, a tendency for some less professional people to cut corners to try and circumvent that timeline because they've got to eat. Most business brokers work for a brand, which means they are commission only and without sales, but they've got bills to pay. So that can drive a behavior that's not in keeping with the way the rest of us would like to see the brokerage world work. Mm -hmm. And so with, I guess, still continuing on the COVID theme, I mean, obviously there was a number of government interventions that completely decimated entire industries, like they were enforced shutdowns. So I guess that clearly impacted it. Are you finding any trends then that when we are rebounding, there are certain industries, maybe those ones that were more damaged coming onto the market because people have sort of had enough? Or are you finding actually good quality stock coming on the market? The answer is both, and I don't mean to be simplistic in there. I'll explain why. The major, one of the major industries is hospitality, particularly on the Gold Coast. And you would do well to find a business that was gaining a lot of interest in the last 12, 18 months in the hospitality industry. The way we are looking to position those hospitality businesses, and they will start to become more popular now, is traditionally speaking, when you're positioning a business, you look at the profit and loss as an external representation of the business. Mm -hmm. What you need to do is you need to break that back down to a more micro level and monthly profit and loss ideally, but as a a worst case scenario, turnover. So you can see, you can graphically demonstrate where it tailed off, Mm -hmm. but equally you can see where it's come back. What's important and what buyers need to understand and and good brokers represent this is where it is today, as in this moment in time, you've come back to your pre-COVID levels. Mm -hmm. So what happened then happened understand that, but the business is in some ways coming out, come out stronger. It's proven resilience. Uh, and we tend to now, we've got enough, big, enough of a uh, curve now to be able to extrapolate where it is today and explain, not to the detriment of the business owner, what happened through COVID. Mm-hmm. But the big industries are those and where we're, where I'm focusing on is manufacturing. There's a big drive for sourcing and manufacturing locally. And uh, I'm having good success with good local businesses who have maintained their presence and in most cases have actually done fairly well because it locally um, produced products in the main are in high demand. The biggest problem we're having at the moment, the biggest two problems businesses are having at the moment are staff and raw material. Mm-hmm. Those two are impeding the growth of, uh, of a number of businesses, but that's well understood. Yeah, for sure. So what are, I guess are some of the strategies that you would share with your clients to successfully prepare their business for sale? Start early is the is the first one. <laughs> if someone's coming to me and they say, I'm, I'm thinking about selling my business, the vast majority in, their, in some part of their psyche, they've already made that mind up. What they haven't done is taken the steps to discuss or analyze their own business to see where the short, not the shortcomings, but where the improvements could be made, whether it be documentation, processes, you're challenging your cogs. But do you think that that's part of their blind spot about their own business? Yes, yes. If... When they come to us, and it's again, it's this the importance 
of sitting down with them for this pre-sign-up conversation to understand where they're at psychologically. What they tell you in the first instance is not ordinarily what they're truly believing or where their pain points are. Their staff are their problem. Well, no, it's not. You haven't invested in machinery. You haven't invested in them. You've got a number of traits within your business that are probably causing you more problems, but you're blaming it on other aspects that are out of your control for convenience sake. So where there is the mental capacity and the fortitude to carry on and the ability to turn something around, we always suggest where we can. We can list you, but I would suggest you talk to someone and maybe revisit this opportunity. If you haven't made your mind, I'll come back in 12 to 18 months because I believe your marketability, the speed at which you'll sell, and more importantly, the price at which you will sell will be um, supremely enhanced. Mm-hmm. That said, if I think they're ready, then I, I will gladly have a conversation and, and, and give them an appraisal as to where I think they'll sit. But we're, I'm, I'm always, and as we are, we're always honest. If we believe they're doing themselves a disservice by going to the market now, we'll always give them the option and the, um, the opinion that it might be too soon. Mm. But... Um, it's down to them. Yeah. And so are there any current trends then in buying or selling businesses? Working from home, it seems to have stimulated um, everyone's wantingness to do something from home. <laughs> uh, online is a hugely sought after category at the moment. And then, so, and that, as I said, that's derived from people now not wanting to do the daily commute or whatever. Healthcare, childcare, and uh, retirement sort of uh, premises, anything aligned to health. So um, still childcare. That surprises me. Childcare, still. Yeah, well, well, Queensland and Queensland. Oh. We haven't had these severe austere lockdowns that every other state has had. So whilst then we've had some breaks in terms of the speed at which we were going, it hasn't slowed us down to the way the other states have. Mm-hmm. What about things like, I guess, in the marketplace, there's certain promoters out there saying, you know, go and buy these businesses, uh, get them to offer you vendors' terms. Oh, crikey, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've spoken about this one before, but like, what's your view on offering vendors terms, or is that a trend that's becoming something in the market? The answer is yes, but I've watched a few a few videos now on the gurus who basically would give you the notion that you could go in and tell them you're doing them a favor by taking the business off their hands and you won't charge them for the privilege. That's, not a, converse, that's a conversation I'd like to see happen, but only as a bystander from afar away if you told a business owner you're going to do them a favor. The, the, what's fueling this is the bank's for as much as they are purporting to be small business minded, they are proving extremely difficult and laborious to deal with. Vendor financing is apparent and then larger companies, you've got earnout arrangements. The problem with vendor finance is that you never really sell the business. You have to understand that you are attached to the business and its performance and, its, uh, and then the ongoing payments from the person who's bought it. Now, whether that be via some kind of mortgage or uh, on property or, or assets or the business itself. So it is an option, but a good business, well cash with good cash flow, depending on the owner, probably won't do vendor financing. It's more of a desperation. The other thing about vendor financing is it's one less point of negotiation for you. If you're negotiating vendor finance, you're probably not negotiating price. Definitely would agree with that. So what's your take then on any new lenders in the market that you're finding actually are business friendly? We're reasonably well connected and networked on the Gold Coast and Southeast Queensland. So we've got um, financiers and we've got second and third tier lenders. I always advise against going to one of the top tier lenders. Problem being, as you know, is once you've made an application, your copy book is, blo- is, is, is marked. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, a stamp that you've actually gone for one approval already. 
And there's a lot more flexibility and opportunity, I believe, at the lower tier lenders. Obviously, do your own due diligence and work with good people like yourself to understand that. But in terms of names, I don't have brands or companies as such, but just... No, I guess just understanding that there is an appetite out there for a small business lending and you don't necessarily have to go the more traditional routes. There yes. are other options that are available. Yeah. I've just sold a business to a, um, a couple, a family. They actually moved up from SA yesterday and they've got... A number of properties, I'm going to tell this story, but a number of properties and cash isn't a problem. And um, the banks have made them do valuations on all of them, even though there's ample money at $2,500 per valuation. And they're taking a month to do it. It's incredible. It's, it's in, unapologetically so because mm-hmm. that's apparently that's the way they do it. Yeah, I've just had the same experience. Not not direct on point, but basically a client was selling their own business and it's been six months of extensions while the bank yeah. has been, oh, we just need this. Oh, yep, it's all approved. We just need this. Or yes. it's this, you know, that the roadblocks are actually quite substantial. And I mean, I guess just circling back to the vendor's terms, I've seen two cases where vendor's terms now that have been offered and it's just... The terms are only as good as the paper that they're written on from an enforcement perspective from the person who sold. Basically, all the risk, as I see it, is still actually on the person who sold the business. And generally, that's the reason that they're selling. Yes. You know, so there's certainly cases where I've seen it succeed. But the two cases that stand out for me where they didn't, they were heartbreaking. And when you weigh up the difference on that. I generally lean towards, well, is a vendor's terms really in anybody's best interest? But I 100% agree. It comes down to what are the terms under which you're negotiating? Yes. Because everything is negotiable, which is actually quite like I like it. You're the intermediary and you take a situational approach. You're not going to be driven by an emotional decision about it. If something stacks up on paper and the person has credibility that's looking to acquire it, great, might be something that you'd put on the table. Yes. One of the um, preconceived comfort points, I dare say, of vendor financing is that oh, well, he can always take the business back. So if, if you sold a business and the person who's bought it from you has been unable to pay you back by cash flow, it tells you the business is probably not as healthy as when you sold it and you sold it for a reason. Mm-hmm. So you're now taking ailing business back that you didn't want to run when it wasn't ailing. So it's, it's, you need to think long and hard. I'm not against vendor financing. It just has to be... It just has to be under the right circumstances. I totally agree. I'm not against it either. I actually just think that it's not suitable for everything. So some of the promoters that actually are out there saying how easy it actually is, it's not that easy, number one. And then it still has a lot of risk attached for both parties. And then coming back to that, really, it comes down to how how well the agreement is written in the first instance as to whether a business owner can actually go back in and take it over. Yes. You know, so there's so many sort of things in that. But on your business then, so what's your big goal now for the the next couple of years i've got one and i came in with this it's, it's something that based on my experience I, I as i looked at the industry the bar wasn't particularly high and i always think if you're going to go to in, into an industry go where you can make a mark well like i said before about people you, you can be selling real estate one day and businesses the next without any kind of commercial or uh, financial background or understanding i would in this office i would love and I have them from day one. We're not quite there yet. We're taking more staff on at the moment. But at some point in the future, I would like to set up an academy where people, young people who are entering the industry are qualified in real estate. It come in in an intern type ship where they learn from the inside out what it takes to sell or to operate and be credible within a good organization. So the habits and the training that you get before are recognized and accredited and signed off before you're allowed into prospective buyers business. So we, we train you, we proof you, and then we unleash you knowing how you're going to operate in accordance with how we operate. It's a laudable thing, I believe. 
but I think it's what the industry ultimately needs. There's no there's no pathway to training here. One minute you're doing, one day you're doing something, next minute you're a business broker. Mm. And as I say, the paydays can be quite far apart, but they can be lucrative. And you owe it to your clients to make sure whatever you earn, however small, however large, you've given due value for money. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. That sounds actually really interesting. I like the standardization verification of competency. It just brings up the bar and it's almost like a project. You know exactly what you're getting when you're walking into a door with somebody with that standard credential. And it's not, it's not about being cookie cutter. Everybody's got their own personality and everybody's got their own journey to get there, which brings with it their own specific skills. But I think that recognition of what's the baseline yes. that they need to have yes. in order to do that job well. Yeah. You know, so I really like that. So when's that start? <laughs> I'm taking on, we're taking on another another office person in January. Again, it's, it's all it's all a, a pathway to enable us to resource effectively. Mm-hmm. We, we could have done it now. There's government grants out there to enable us to bring people on. But I owe it to the person who comes in to make sure we're ready for them, not them ready for us. Mm-hmm. Because it's 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 important that we first few, our first two or three, are not guinea pigs necessarily, but are people that we can reference as examples of how we're trying to do it. And that takes resource and that takes time. And so sometime in the next 12 months, I dare say. Okay, great. So it basically, I mean, I love that concept. It's about setting people up for success. Yes. And giving them the best opportunity to be the best that they can be and to really explore the different things that are out there for them. And if they do this earnestly, genuinely, consistently, forget all of the humanistic element, you will make money. Whatever your values are, you do something to make money. But if you do it effectively, properly, consistently, authentically, people will come to you and they will be glad to pay what it is you're asking for your service. Mm -hmm. It all comes back to their ability to earn money, but in a way that gives them a reoccurring referral stream. Mm -hmm. Because once you do it well, people will tell their friends. And then that's where most of our work comes from. That's just a good way to do business, really. Well, a business brokering is a very misunderstood and not understood profession because of the way we have to operate. A real estate person, they will send a drone above your house. They'll put a, they'll put a sign on your lawn. They'll tell your neighbors. They'll go on radio. They'll have cars. Everything the aforementioned we don't do. But it's standardized, really, isn't it? Like you know what you expect when you're selling a house, that the sign will go up. Yes, that the, the, yes. You will be out there. You will have open home inspections. And I mean, those things aren't traditionally done in a business-to-business setting. No, no. As I say, the first, if, if I do my job well, the first anyone will know the business is sold is when the new owner walks in. Mm. Clients, customers, staff. In your experience, are you seeing more collaboration between competition and those people who are looking to sell? So are you being in a position to approach who might normally be perceived as competitors? Yes, the um, very much so. There's a, there's a lot of mergers going on at the moment. Um, and part of our service where circumstances are um, require it and opportunistically, we will reach out to their competitors under very strict codes of, of operation to see if they're in the acquisition mode. And then we will tentatively walk through what this opportunity, should it be available, looks like. And if that was the case, would you be interested? And then we go through confidentiality agreements, non-disclosures and so forth. I've just sold a business here on the Gold Coast to they're in a Malaysian company, but they've got their Australian head office over here under exactly that operational platform. Reached out to them and now they just bought it because it's a, a tremendously logical 
um, beneficial acquisition for, for them going forward. Yeah, it strikes me that that actually is something that should perhaps be a little bit more out there simply because, I mean, there's great synergies in it. They already know it. They're already serving a similar type of market. There can be some fantastic add-on benefits as well from their point in acquiring it because you're just expanding the customer base or bringing on niche services or goods that you might not have been able to directly service yourself. Ancillary ranges. And even, even, as you said before, just the database or access to markets you weren't previously in. I'm selling a business at the moment that has government contracts. And I know that I get good inquiries because to get into a position where you can, you're accredited to service to governments, local, state or otherwise, mm-hmm. it takes years. Acquiring a business that's already credentialed mm-hmm. means that you've, got, you've already got access. And the, the challenge is then is to bring your current range in on the back of that. So now it's, um, and the other secondary, more selfish reason for doing that, let's say, or the, the consequential outcome is that you're talking to business owners who might not be interested in selling that one, but you've just stimulated a, a thought in their mind about the possibility of selling and you've just front of centered your name mm-hmm. in the conversation. Yep. And that's happened before as well. I'm not. So you sell businesses, do you? Yeah, well, let's have a chat. So wow. there's no downside. If someone says no, however politely or otherwise, it's a no, mm-hmm. but the benefits can be profound. Sometimes it's that seed of thought, do you know? Like yes. maybe, oh, actually perhaps that would be a good acquisition or maybe it's a good time to sell. Yes. Cool. So I guess now you've been in business yourself for a couple of years now. What's the one biggest lesson that you've learned? Take the time to understand. By that I mean a lot of the material that's out there promoting businesses, you're stating the bloody obvious. You've got to frame the business with knowledge and futuristic uh, opportunity. You've got to give the why they would buy it and make it easy for them. So if you bought this business, these are the opportunities. Whereas way too many times, here's the last three years, here's what it does, here's it. It tells you what is, but they're not buying for what is. You've got to paint the picture of the future. Yes. And to do that, you have to take the time to understand from the owner's perspective, stuff that he instinctively ordinarily wouldn't tell you. And that's why it takes so long for good business brokerages to put stuff online and to get things marketed because you've taken the additional time to spend the time with the owner and get them comfortable with telling you. And that's all That's all down to listening. Cool. And I know that we spoke before about what your number one tip, I guess, was for people who are selling, which was to start early. What about for people on the buyer's side? They're looking to buy a business. Understand the market you'd like to be in and why. I'm looking for a business. What type of business? Oh, I don't know. Oh, crikey. Okay. That's that's a conversation. That, you know, Does that actually happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got I've got a million dollars. What's oh great? So what's sort of business? I don't know where Queensland. Okay, right. Can we just narrow this down? The million dollars is attractive because that's that's it's, it's a reasonable business. And a lot of time, if if they genuinely don't know, you'll say, listen, here, here are some things to consider. Let's have a conversation in a week's time when you've pondered more. What are your skill sets? What are your background? What's your education? No, I don't want to do that. So understand what and why. Um, is it a lifestyle or is it a business? And importantly, start your cash flow understandings early. If you need finance, start as early as you can. Understand that you're going to need the business to, to throw into the mix to, to get assessed, but don't start your application or don't start the process of your application when you've just put an offer on a business. Because if it's a popular business, you will be timelined. There'll be other people who are who started the process earlier or are not requiring cash, uh, finance, sorry, to come in. So understand why understand when and understand how you're going to do it. Okay. There was something that came up with that. 
What about budget? What's a reasonable expectation of budget? Like understanding completely that industry will drive different types of budgets. But are you finding people are realistic about budgets? Like they're coming in wanting a $500,000 cash flow business, but yet they're only prepared to spend $600,000 to get it? Well, I ask always ask a question, what's your budget? Oh, I've got up to. And then, as you say, you work it back. So what are you looking for? What is it? You're looking for a business that's established that you'd like to bring into another business? Or are you looking for an ailing business you'd like to bring on? And then you work it back. Well, if you're looking for a business that's minimal risk, that's high, uh, high performing, and you want a 50% ROI, you're not going to get that. Because they, they don't understand. They think that they're negotiating with me. I'm assuming they think that whatever they tell me, I will look to squeeze them somehow. All I'm trying to do is ascertain to give them the best possible outcome. I don't negotiate personally. I handle the negotiations. I just, I'm a professional matchmaker. I put the most probable buyer with the most plausible seller and negotiations to start there. So I've got a half a million dollars, right? So you'd like to buy a $400,000 business. No, no, I want to buy a fight. No, you can't because you've got your cost of business, your cost of your stock, your bond up front, your rent, your cash flow. Oh, right. People don't know the additional, the ancillary things that have to be considered. So, I mean, obviously, from my perspective, in accounting, starting in a business underfunded is like yes. the, the cardinal sin. So always making sure that there's sufficient working capital there when you start. Um, you just said something really interesting. Is there actually an appetite in the market for ailing businesses? So to purposely buy a business that might be on the decline? Oh, yeah, 100%. Not every business that's underperforming is a bad business. Depending and, and increasingly, actually, with some of the older generations who've been through the GFC and now been through COVID, a lot of instances of the lack of investment. There's a lack of marketing. There's a lack of understanding why today you're still in business. And I give the analogy when COVID came, well, prior to COVID coming, the routine was I open my door, people come in, at the end of the day, I close my door, I rinse, repeat five days a week, and I make money. And I never challenge it because it always happens. COVID comes, I open my door, no one comes in. What's going on? What have I done wrong? Then you start the, the, the assessment, the appraisal. When was the last time you engaged them with what they really want? When, when you bought something new? strategically, what have you challenged yourself? What have you done different? Oh, no, no, I just opened my door. I just offered the same thing all the time for the last 10 years. And well, now now, now things are different. And that person, depending on where they are in their, in their, their personal professional life, may not have the capability to do what's required to put this business back into a strata that it's capable of with a bit of their time and a bit of investment because they've got a great database, got a great reputation, good core range, but becoming less relevant. So someone with an external perspective, with a new set of eyes and a new stamina coming in could easily turn that business around. Do you find that there's almost like professional groups or teams going around that actually are the people that yeah, will buy these types yes. of businesses? Yeah, yeah, whether it be manufacturing, whether it be hospitality, or we've got people in our database. If you get a business that looks like this, please ring me. Wow, yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. Because they know the essence of the business is good. Mm -hmm. the, the engine is great. It's just got a shabby bodywork. And all they're going to do is come in, change a few things, systemize, run it for a couple of years and sell it on for a handsome profit. You know, it's typical venture capitalism. Do you find people then are aggregating now? So basically, so in venture cap, obviously their, their target range is, you know, the 10 million plus. And then are you finding smaller groups now coming together to aggregate to get then those higher multiples on sale once they've grouped different entities together? A more general business brokerage in our office, we don't necessarily have those kind of higher end businesses. 
No, so not, not much venture cap. So uh, like, so venture cap is a model really, particularly where they're doing this type of thing. But say, let's say a printing company. So you might get one person who has an, a hyper-specialist niche in that and they know that any printing right. company that they can buy, yes. they will actually do incredibly well. So you're finding that now individuals are almost becoming their own VC firms insofar that they're taking the personalized skills that they've got and buying one print shop and then another print shop and then another print shop and individually aggregating yes, for them to eventually pitch to sell the whole suite. Yeah, there's certainly people out there now who understand it's a form of franchising or cuttering. Yeah, there's a prevalent at the moment, it's prevalent at the moment for people looking to buy alien businesses for that reason. Are you finding that's in part tied to what I guess has been termed the great resignation? So people are leaving corporate and like, I've got these awesome skill sets, what am I going to do? Great, I'll buy a business, leverage what I know, the networks and connections yes. I have in that, but to go forth and be merry. Yes, very much so. There's a, a business in Brisbane, it's, I was approached to approach that business because this particular ex-corporate wanted to get into a specific industry and we gave a short we had a short list and um, I approached number of which one of them said I could be interested for all of those reasons he's bringing in what he's done elsewhere he understands the value or lack of in this particular business and he wants to add then two or three more to bring together and get a scale and vertically integrate yeah I like that as a model I think it's a great model yes. personally yes I can tell <laughs> But um, I guess, is there any one lesson that you'd like to share about being in your own business? Gee, Max, just one. I have a tendency of being overly expectant of myself. And it's taken me a number of years now to understand that there's only so much that I can do. And the conversation we had before about be renowned for one thing. Focus on the stuff that you're good at that's core to your business. And then seek alternatives for those areas that you're not good at or you can do but will frustrate the life out of you and probably end up costing you more money eventually and you'll get half the outcome. So that only comes with experience and cash flow. So now that I've got both, I'm, as we said, you spoke before, I am diligently and urgently now reassessing my sphere and my work to see what I can remove, but not dilute quality for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. Like we focus on the three aspects. What's core is critical that you do it. That's your sweet spot. It's yes. how you make money. Then it's like those things that you're good at, kind of core, adjacent, but yeah, it could be done by somebody else. And three, absolutely get rid of them. Yes. You should not be doing them in any way, shape or form. <laughs> to me, accounting, bookkeeping, they're really, really important, but it's so cost effective to get someone else to do it. And I hate even doing expenses, to be <laughs> honest. I just know while I'm doing this, I'm not doing that. And that is tomorrow's revenue. I'm reconciling yesterday's. I should be focusing on the future. Pipeline to me is everything. And it's it's so easy, like particularly with you know the finance function in a small business. Honestly, it's so easy to find a great bookkeeper who is your business best friend to actually just take it off your hands yes. and get the work done for you. I love my bookkeeper, not in a personal perspective, but the way she's. I'd say, Lou, I've made a mistake here, and then she'll get on. You got access, and she'll get in the back end, and you do the same. And I just leave it. I know it's done. And so I'll just get an email. Don't, don't worry about it. It's all good. Uh, but and that's, that's, that's you, trust. Yeah. And that's what you want from your team. Like, yes. To me, like small business is a team, you know, and then the question becomes is who's on your team to run the business? Yes. So well, that's awesome. So how would people find you online? Uh, well, we've got, uh, we've just had a, a newly revamped website. It's uh, www.twoldgc. That's short for transworldgc, twgc.com.au. And personally, I'm on LinkedIn. So it's Jim Dash Roddy on LinkedIn. We do what we have Facebook and so forth, but being a professional, we, we target B2B. Um, we're not prolific on, on Facebook. 
So the main, the two main ones are, is our website and uh, my LinkedIn profile. Great. So I'd like to thank you for being here today. It's been no, actually it's okay. a really good conversation. Uh, there's a couple of things I'd actually like to get you to unpack. I'll probably get you back again and we can unpack them in a little bit more detail. I guess more specifics about how to get businesses set up to actually get ready for sale. So I do feel that there's a lot that our listeners can take away from your own small business story as well. So we'd like to wish you the best of success and look forward to watching you hit those big goals. Thank you so, so much for affording me the opportunity. And uh, if I can have been of any help to anyone out there, then this has been tremendously worthwhile. Awesome. Well, thanks heaps. All right. Well, that's everything small business for today. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to stay up to date with our show, please subscribe or follow in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. If you know someone who might enjoy this podcast, please share it with them or share it on your socials and tag us. Until next time, this is everything small business.